Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 59 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending June 30, 2017, the holiday edition. In this day, which starts the July 4th weekend, Jay and I return for a wide-ranging discussion on some of the week's top compliance-related stories. I must note that explicit language is used in this podcast. Some of our stories include the the Sessions Justice Department releases its second declination involving CDM Smith. We take a look at that and what it may mean going forward. The trial of the son of the president of Equatorial Guinea continues in France. The trial is for embezzlement of funds from Equatorial Guinea, and we highlight the trial reports that are found in the Global Line of Corruption blog. Uh, we ask the question uh, that is posed in the following book, The Chicken Shit Club, by Jesse Eisinger. Is the DOJ afraid to go to trial and white collar prosecutions? Uh, the book, uh, we link to the book for uh, pre sale and a review in the Financial Times. I ask, which is your favorite blog post of the year so far, or one you think has been the most significant? My nominee is Susan Fowler, the former Uber engineer, whose blog post led to the Holder Report. In an extraordinarily interesting and important podcast, Matt Kelly talks to Wei Chin. The podcast is found on Matt's site, Radical Compliance. We discuss some of the highlights from Wei Chin's uh, discussions with Matt. Jay previews his, uh, actually doesn't preview, actually talks about his weekend report, which he posted yesterday. We note that at the nearly halfway mark of the Major League Baseball season, the Houston Astros lead the majors with the best record. We also report that the Everything Compliance Episode 13 podcast is out. And I talk about a very exciting development that uh, I'm coming out with on July 10th, which is the introduction of the Compliance Podcasting Network. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA with my good friend and colleague, Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Uh, How is it? How is it in Houston Astros land? Houston Astros land is number one in the Major League Baseball pennant race this year. Best record in baseball. But we're recording this on the Friday before July 4th. So this is our holiday edition. So uh, happy July 4th to everyone. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, some of the interesting things that uh, happened this week. We had a, a Turns out a flurry of activity today. So, Jay, why don't we just uh, hop right into it? And um, starting off with uh, the Sessions Justice Department has issued the second declination of uh, 2017 since uh, or s- since the Trump administration took over for um, a company called CDM Smith. Uh, they were represented by our good friend Nat Edmonds. So, shout out to Nat Edmonds for a uh, securing a declination. It was for the company's uh, actions in India, where they paid approximately $1.18 million in bribes to government officials in exchange for highway construction supervision and design contracts and a water project contract, uh, resulting in approximately $4 million in net profits. The, the bribes were paid were generally 2 to 4% of the contract price, and they were paid through fraudulent subcontractors who provided no actual services and, met, and understood that their payments were meant to solely benefit the Indian officials, the corrupt Indian officials. In addition, 
the division responsible for uh, CDM Smith's work in India, uh, paid $25,000 to local officials uh, regarding the uh, water project contract. So there's, uh, uh, we're going to link to the um, declination itself in the show notes. We've also got a link to Dick Casson's excellent summary article of the declination. There is really a dearth of information about the specific uh, actions which the company and their counsel led to garner this declination, but those are set out in the um, declination itself. And uh, CDM Smith agreed to pay $1.037 million in disgorgement and, um, excuse me, $4.037 million in disgorgement, which represented their uh, profits. And they got a, a slight little payout. Uh, the first payment due 10 days after the signing, and then September 1 and October 1. So a uh, little little uh, wiggle room there. But, um, Jay, here we now have uh, two FCPA enforcement actions or non-enforcement actions, maybe more properly in the form of declinations from the Trump administration. It seems to me that the government is sending a, a very clear signal. Um, are you seeing something different uh, over there on the left coast? Uh, no, I, I completely agree. And, um, you know, and a little bit later on, we're going to give a, a plug for our Everything Compliance podcast, uh, which uh, posted yesterday. And I don't want to take full credit, but I did take a look at FCPA sabermetrics, and I noticed that things were a little bit lacking in Q1 and Q2 of this year. But then I did say that we're only halfway through. So uh, this does give me um, a little bit more confidence. And the other thing I noted here, and, and I think this uh, language is probably a result of the recent uh, Supreme Court decision upon whether or not disgorgements are tax deductible. But in the second to last paragraph, it says CDM Smith acknowledges that no tax deduction may be sought in connection with any part of its payment of the dis- disgorgement amount. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that's what I have to say. I think this is good news. And uh, let's see what happens after the, the long holiday weekend. So a couple of other things, uh, you know, I really hadn't put two and two together, but uh, we released the podcast and the next day, the very next day, there's a resolution announced. Man, I just didn't realize the power of, of Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors and the podcast. So uh, we need to consider that for our advertising rate going forward. Um, but uh, a couple of other things really struck me, Jay. The first one was, in a, you correctly pointed out that uh, there would be uh, no part of the monies paid would be uh, tax deductible, or the company would take no tax deduction. The next sentence says, and I quote, CDM Smith further agrees that it will not seek or accept directly or indirectly reimbursement or indemnification from any source with regard to the disgorgement amount. And Jay, I found that I don't want to say troubling, but at least interesting for a couple of reasons. If you think back to the Lindy Gas decision, uh, in Lindy, the company had uh, reserved uh, or put in escrow payments to a group of individuals it had bought a company from who became employees of Lindy Gas, and part of their payout was in this escrowed money. That escrowed money uh or the money was escrowed when the company discovered the illicit payments. And uh, the clear implication was part of that escrowed money was held back because of FCPA violations. 
and part of that money may have been used to uh, resolve the uh, Lindy uh, gas declination with disgorgement. So um, here we have the government stating and CDM Smith agreeing that they will not seek reimbursement or indemnification. So does that um, that would seem to preclude that them going for a clawback or uh, any other type of um, actions against employees or third parties who may have uh, profited from this uh, illegal scheme. And so uh, that's not something we have seen before that last sentence. We had seen that uh, companies had agreed not to uh, take a tax deduction. So I wonder, uh, we may have to keep an eye on that uh, moving forward because, Jay, if if a company um, makes a uh, disgorgement either for declination or for just a regular FCPA enforcement action, um, it's possible that they could seek a clawback from any executives who were involved or others. So just something to maybe watch uh, going forward. Is it possible that the DOJ is leaving space for their own individual uh, prosecution? Well, that was my original thought, but this this really does not seem to touch upon that. And the government, Smith, could not agree uh, with the government that, to have the government not prosecute individuals. Only individuals can agree with the government to that. So even if Smith agreed that it would not, or the government agreed with Smith, they would not prosecute any individuals. That's that really you can only have that agreement with individuals. I guess the larger point I'd like to to raise, Jay, is that clearly uh, self disclosure is an appropriate mechanism, and the uh, result that C D Smith C D M Smith received, taken together with Lindy Gas really is a superior result and that um, certainly companies can try to tee it up and go to trial against the government, but there's there's really no upside to that because you have to admit basically you engaged in bribery and corruption and here um, uh, clearly the company did just as they clearly did in Lindy Gas. So um, not taking advantage of this pilot program even expanded beyond what it originally was. I think any lawyer who uh, would recommend that a company do that really is is, uh, shirking their obligations to a company. Definitely agree. And I guess um, going forward, it would be interesting to learn um, what was the timetable on this declination and uh, whether or not, you know, as we get more and more of these, we should see how effective the um, pilot program has been because uh, DOJ's intent was to try to get through these things in less than a year. So uh, maybe uh, Nat will be able to shed a little light on this when we see him this fall at the uh, SCCE uh, annual CEI in Las Vegas. It's a great point. Uh, Jay, I'd like to note that uh, the excellent trial reports from the trial of the son of the president of Equatorial Guinea, who's under tri- in trial in France for embezzlement of funds, uh, is still ongoing. And we've got two more reports up on the Global Anti-Corruption blog. Um, I wanted to pose the following question to you, Jay. What is your favorite blog post of the year or... What do you find to be the most significant one of the year? And I will start it off by telling you that uh, mine was former Uber engineer Susan Fowler, who in my mind has a top blog post, 
uh, because I think uh, it directly led to the investigation of the company by the Holder Report. And, and the first paragraph of the Holder Report, in fact, says, uh, on February 19, 2017, Susan Fowler, a former engineer at Uber, po- published a blog post detailing allegations of harassment, discrimination, and retaliation dur- during her employment at Uber. The next day, Uber retained Eric Holder and Tammy Alvaron to conduct an investigation, or excuse me, to conduct a review. So um, pretty clear uh, direct link there. And for those of us out there blogging, uh, this is a pretty powerful post. And um, it's going to be interesting to see uh, the continued fallout from Uber. But um, what I'd like to just uh, give a shout out to is Susan Fowler for pointing all this out. I think this is just a, an incredibly powerful blog post. I've read the entire blog post. It's based upon her personal experience uh, and her talking to others. Uh, it's written, obviously, from the heart. She obviously cared about the company, uh, was uh, not very pleased with the way she was treated, as uh, you will see the what happened to her by reading the blog post. But it really shows to me, Jay, the power of a social media tool that maybe people had not uh, considered that powerful previously. Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more on that, Tom. Um, are, is there any color as to she just posted it? It was her personal blog. And did anyone else pick it up or do you have any idea on, on how it spread so quickly? You know, it just seemed to go spread like fire through social media, Jay, and uh, just went viral. And uh, uh, national newspapers picked it up. Obviously, the Uber board picked it up because the next day they hired Covington and Burling to uh, do a thorough review. So um, I think it just uh, kind of went out on its own. But it, you're right. It was posted on her personal uh, blog site. So uh, very, very powerful uh, blog post. And it'll be interesting to see. Uh, if if our readers have any other nominees or listeners, I should say, have any other nominees and uh, where where the second half of the year takes blogging. Yeah, so um, I would definitely agree with you that hers is the most powerful blog post and maybe we should nominate the um, the Uber holder report for the most um, informative, uh, you know, report out. I, I don't know if we would call it a, a report, but an investigative report, because it really, uh, you know, is an eye opener as to how toxic that corporate culture was there. So I think if you take these two documents together, it really paints um, a, a picture of not only life at Uber, but life potentially in Silicon Valley. I, I think that there was some headline that I read yesterday about, you know, Google and that it's still, you know, a white male um, dominated type company. So, you know, the the call for diversity uh, of opinion and diversity of skills um, is still being heard loud, loud and clear. You know, said like the father of two twin girls, uh, and I will add as the father of a somewhat older girl, certainly here, here. Um, next, uh, we have to give a huge shout out. And huge tip of the hat to our colleague, Matt Kelly, because today he posted a podcast with Wei Chen. He wrote about it. It's all up on Radical Compliance. It's linked to in the show notes. But it's a very interesting discussion um, with Wei Chen that focuses on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs document, which was released in February. And I urge everyone to listen to the podcast because it will give you some great insight 
into what led to the creation of that document, how Wei Chin thinks compliance officers should uh, consider that document going forward and how they can, can frankly use it. And there are just a couple of thoughts that um, I really uh, would like to put forward, which came from the podcast. And the first one was um, recognizing that when Wei Chin would look at a compliance program, it was a company that was in the internet in the throes of an FCPA investigation. Um, and she said, really, what compliance officers need to take away from the evaluation of corporate compliance documents is to get beyond the buzzwords. Um, tone at the top is clearly a buzzword, but she wants to know what has your senior management executive level done for your compliance program? And more importantly, have you documented that? Um, They've sent emails. Great. Show me the emails. Show me who the emails were sent to. Show me the number of times they sent out emails. They they did a um, five-minute video that's attached to the Code of Conduct. How many people saw that? Uh, well, it's attached to their Code of Conduct training. How many people can you tell me affirmatively viewed that rather than ticked off that they uh, ticked off the box that they've received code of conduct training. Just a, a really interesting uh, point that uh, even compliance officers uh, need to uh, do this. And certainly uh, the lawyers that are involved in uh, many of these cases, uh, she was uh, said really need to get to, of course, operationalization of compliance. And she posed the following question that I think every compliance officer should ask, which is, what does your compliance program mean for your employees? Uh, how are they trained? Is the training effective? Is the training tailored for them? How can they make the decisions around the compliance issues which they touch on in their uh, individual business uh, workings for the company? What does compliance mean for the individual employee? And that's what uh, is, I think, a fabulous definition of operationalizing is moving it down to what does it mean to the individual level? But it's a, a much more wide-ranging uh, interview, and certainly every compliance officer needs to uh, take a listen and uh, consider what she said uh, in terms of uh, some of the points that uh, some of the points that may have been misinterpreted uh, by some in the compliance community. She is uh, uh, pretty straightforward about some of the uh, misinterpretations that she believes occurred. So uh, shout out to Matt. Uh, Having Wei Chin's voice contribute to the compliance community and the discussion of the compliance profession, I think, will only add to the richness and fervor of the compliance profession. So I look forward to uh, seeing what she, uh, uh, what other information she can share with us going forward, Jay. Yeah, it's going to. It's uh, it, it's about time uh, that she, she actually gets to speak on her own. She, as we have noted, has been. Uh, tweeting and posting up a storm on LinkedIn, but uh, it, she has some great insights into what's happening in the community. She has a wealth of experience, and it'll be interesting uh, to see who's going to be lucky enough to uh, get her counsel going forward and being able to share that with the rest of the community. So, Jay, we had an interesting um, announcement of a book release. Now, the book has not been released for publication. It will be released on July 11th. And it has a title which uh, we're going to read here. Of course, this is a PG podcast. I pride myself on all my, all my material is PG. But we're going to have to violate that uh, because uh, we'll have explicit language. But I'm quoting a work of art, or at least a title of a book. So I suppose 
I can uh, take the liberty to do it. But it's a book by Jesse Isinger called The Chicken Shit Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. And in its write-up on Amazon, it says from former, excuse me, from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jesse Isinger, a blistering account of corporate greed and impunity and the reckless, often anemic response from the Department of Justice. Why were no bankers put in prison after the financial crisis of 2008? Why do C- CEOs seem to commit wrongdoing with impunity? The problem goes beyond banks too deemed too big to fail to almost every large corporation in America, to pharmaceuticals, to autos, and beyond. <clears throat> the Chicken Chick Club, an inside reference to prosecutors too scared of failure and too daunted by legal impediments to do their job, explains why. So once again, it will be released on uh, July 11th. Uh, Certainly in our world, I think it would be a very interesting read. Uh, Jay, we've linked to a review that uh, is in the Financial Times. And given the um, recent comments by a New York uh, sitting federal district judge about the lack of individual prosecutions in the Ziff case, I think this is going to put more pressure on the Department of Justice yet with the uh, certainly with the Yates memo, uh, the structural form uh, or the structure for the DOJ to move forward against individuals is there. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see kind of that dynamic if it if that question is answered or at least considered in Eisinger's book, or if it's really just a review. Nevertheless, uh, I think within the uh, white collar defense community, there's already a buzz about this book, and it's going to be interesting to uh, to get it and read it. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you can get it. Um, you can sign up to get it early, I believe, on Amazon UK, but it's not listed here yet on Amazon US. So I, I think their publishing date was um, August 7th or 8th. So we'll have to see if it uh, either shows up earlier stateside or how we can get a copy of it. So, well, on Amazon, it says it's released July 11th. So July 11th. Okay, so it's only uh, a week and a half out. Yep, yep. So, um, so any, oh, uh, I think uh, you finally got the Jay Rosen weekend report up. Why don't you tell us about yeah. it? Yeah, it only took two long weekends, but uh, continuing with my series about how to use compliance as a competitive advantage, um, first uh, first blog post looked at that. The second blog post looked at uh, how we can all come together and build our metaphorical barn. And now uh, we're going to take a look at breaking down the silos. And uh, I've entitled this week's post, Using GE's Workout Process to Break Down Compliance Silos and Build a Competitive Advantage. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. And sorry it took so long. So we'll link to that in the show notes and um, really looking forward to, to that, Jay. Jay, um, as you know, yesterday. Hey, Tom, uh, again, uh, you've dropped out for a sec. So um, well, I spoke about uh, my book, not my book, sorry. I spoke about my post this week and uh, anything new happening with your book or any uh, plans coming up in the month of July that you'll be speaking anywhere? 
I guess I can have a little teaser announcement, Jay, because uh, in um, the second week of July, I'm going to be announcing the uh, founding of the uh, Compliance Podcasting Network. And uh, it's going to consist of eight podcasts that uh, I'm involved with. And it will be a fabulous resource for the compliance practitioner uh, or the compliance professional going forward. It'll certainly be the only compliance podcasting network. Of course, this week in FCPA will be one of the featured podcasts uh, coming out every Friday um, throughout the year. So that's been the, the other project I've been working on. And I'm really looking forward to, to getting that up and getting that going. Um, the podcast will be, of course, as I said, this week in FCPA. The daily uh, One Month to Better Compliance Program podcast, where I have a different subject each month. The FCPA Compliance Report, the uh, Compliance Report International Edition, where I have um, uh, compliance practitioners from outside the United States. I'm really excited to announce the founding of another podcast on board, board governance and risk called Across the Board. We've got uh, Compliance Into the Weeds with uh, our good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, the Everything Compliance, which uh, someone named us the Four Amigos of Compliance. So perhaps uh, we may have to take on that moniker, Jay. Um, My podcast on business leadership, 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership hosted by Richard Lummis, will move over to the Compliance Podcasting Network. It's currently been sitting on the um, Rainmaker platform, so I'll add that in. In addition, I've got Unfair and Unbalanced, a podcast uh, that I engage in with uh, Roy Snell and um, from the SCCE, where we really focus on the compliance profession. So it's, for me, a pretty exciting endeavor. Uh, putting the, the podcasting, the compliance podcast network to, has really been a labor of love. And I really wanted to, to bring together uh, a network of podcasts for the compliance professional and compliance practitioner that they can tune in and utilize uh, in a wide variety of ways. So the breadth and scope of the topics that I'm going to be able to cover, uh, I think will give uh, every compliance professional and practitioner uh, a really a, a broad base of information, knowledge, and education going forward. So on behalf of Tom Fox and myself, Jay Rosen, we'd like to thank you for joining us, taking a look at the week that was an FCPA for the week ending June 30th. We hope you all have a safe and uh, fun 4th of July weekend, and we look forward to speaking with you next week. Thanks so much. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly podcast in compliance. Also, if you want to reach Jay, you can reach him at Jay Rosen at Affiliated Monitors, and I am at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week, and I hope you will join us again for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.